We come this morning to the end of our studies in the life of Abram, and as we do, I'd like to circle around and take you back to where we started. Whenever I preached the first sermon in this series, I opened with a couple of questions, which are really one question. Do you remember? And you're thinking, what's he talking about? Of course you don't remember. Don't worry. I ask you to think about these two questions. Where am I going and what am I building? Those questions are always running in the background of our minds, whether we pay much attention to them or not. We're all going somewhere, we're all building something. And if we don't pay attention to those questions, we will simply end up going with the flow. We'll travel in the same direction as our neighbors and we'll end up building the same kind of life that everyone else in North Down around us builds. Over the last couple of months, we've met a man who didn't go with the flow and didn't build the same thing as the people around him. We've got to know Abram and we've seen him living by faith. We'll come back to those questions before we finish. But before we do, let's come one last time uh, to this uh, story of the life of Abram. When you come to chapter 22, you come really to the dramatic climax of Abram's life. You remember how God tested him, the severest test imaginable. And you'll remember how Abram passed the test. God pronounced his verdict when he said, now I know that you fear God because you've not withheld from me your son, your only son. Abram has learned finally to live by faith. Although chapter 22 gives us the dramatic climax, it's not the end of the story. Abram's story runs through chapters 23 to 25, uh, and we read of his death there in the opening verses of chapter 25. I think it's quite a beautiful picture of a person that emerges there. Gives us the sense that Abram's story ends well. Let me show you just a few highlights. Abram's a loving husband dignified in his grief. We're told in the early verses of chapter 23, verse 2, that he went to mourn for Sarah and to weep over her. If you read on in the chapter, you'd find uh, repeated attempts by local landlords to grant him a burial ground free of charge, but he insists on paying the going rate. He loves Sarah. He doesn't mind that it's costly for him to bury her well. He wants to honor her appropriately. Abram's not only a loving husband, he's a general, generous father. And we're told in the opening verses of chapter 24 that Abram was now very old. The Lord had blessed him in every way. Uh, we're not going to look at the events of chapter 24 today, but we read in verse 35 of the same chapter that when Abram's servant is describing his master's household, he says, the Lord has blessed my master abundantly and he's become wealthy. He's given him sheep and cattle, silver and gold, male and female servants and camels and donkeys. He's a wealthy guy, Abram at the time uh, when he's getting older. But notice what he does with his wealth. In chapter 25, verse 5, we read that Abram left everything that he owned to Isaac. But while he was still living, he gave gifts to the sons of his concubines 
and sent them away from his son Isaac to the east. Abram uses his wealth to give generously to all in his household and to create a stable legacy for his son. Would that every estate were settled as amicably and as wisely as that. He's a loving husband, he's a generous father, but above all, he's a a spiritual leader. Chapter 24, many of you will be familiar with the story, but really what it's doing is it's telling us the lengths that Abram's willing to go to to ensure that his son Isaac continues in the covenant that God's made with Abram. On the one hand, he sends his servant a very long way back to his family in order to get a wife uh, for Isaac. He's looking for a woman who'll, who'll share his values and his spiritual priorities. And on the other hand, when the servant asks what he should do if the woman won't come back with him to Canaan, Abram says, make sure that you do not take my son back there. I've answered God's call. When he said, leave, I left. When he said, go, I went. And now that we're in the land that he's, he's promised, we're not going to leave. Make sure you don't take my son back there. He's a spiritual leader. He's doing everything in his power to ensure that his son walks in his ways by faith in the living God. It's wonderful to see how Abram's story ends. With that quick survey of chapters 23 to 25, uh, we've seen how his story ends, but I want to spend the rest of our time looking back over Abram's life, and we'll discover that his is a story of, of growing faith, and that Abram's story is a story of God's glorious grace. Let's notice how Abram's grown in his faith. If you only met Abram in these closing chapters, this part of his story that we've looked at this evening, or this morning, sorry, you might think that he's simply one of the good guys, that he's somebody who lives well, that he does so easily, that it comes naturally to him. But we know, because we've read the whole story, that that hasn't been the case. There's been a whole lot more going on under the surface People of faith, people of great faith, are usually people who've endured intense struggles and deep sorrows. They've come through challenges, things that have consumed their heart and their strength. Abram's difficulties began, if you remember, as soon as he said yes to God, as soon as he left home, he ran into all sorts of trouble with his nephew Lot. He struggled struggled for years and decades with barrenness in his own family. His second wife eventually bore him a son, and that only added layers of complexity to his family life. Finally, he underwent the severest test of all when God asked him to sacrifice the son that he had longed for all those years. We've noticed throughout this series that Abram learns to live by faith, and that he's known in the New Testament as the father of those who have faith. But what we maybe didn't account for is how that faith was forged in him, how this reputation was earned. 
It was in the ordinary, everyday humdrum experiences of his life. In his marriage and his parenting, in his moving house and raising cattle, in making war and making peace, and in sorting out squabbles with his nephew. Abram's faith was forged not in church services, not in a theological seminary, but through the real and desperate struggles that made up his life. His faith grew in the soil of those times as he watched God move and direct him in loving and unexpected ways. Let me pause here for a second and ask you a question. It's one that's been in the background the whole way through this series, but we're going to bring it today as we close the series into the foreground. My question is this, do you want to be a person of faith? Why, why have we been assuming that all along? I'll ask it today. Are, are you willing to say yes to God? Are you willing to continue to pursue him whatever the cost? Can you learn to trust him no matter how hard your circumstances to become? To believe, as we said last week, that God is not, nor ever will be, your adversary. We need to keep this question about trusting God with our, our real everyday lives, even in our difficulties. We need to keep that question always before us in every moment. It's not a question for next year or for some time down the line. It's a question for now and for today. You see, today and this week, this month and this year, they're all we have. Every hour of every day, we're writing the words and the sentences, the next pages and paragraphs in the story of our lives. Every decision and action I, every decision I make, every action I undertake, it determines who I'm becoming. C.S. Lewis put it very well in Mere Christianity. He says that every time you make a choice, you are turning the central part of you into something a little different than what it was before. For Abram, over the years and decades, he's turned the central part of him into a heart that trusts God. The beautiful old Abraham that we see at the end of the story is precisely the sort of man who emerges after years and decades of living by faith. Do you want to be a person of faith? Start today. Trust him with that next decision and that next step. We've seen how Abram's story ended. It ended well. We've seen that it's a story of Abram's growing faith. But we're going to take most of our time today noticing that Abram's story is a story of God's glorious grace. God has utterly transformed this man. Do you remember what he was like when we first met him? The kind of guy who lied repeatedly to save his own skin with no regard for his wife's honor. 
He seems to have lacked any sort of moral courage. Somebody who was far too anxious about his own personal security. Abram was vulnerable to the wrong kinds of pressure. When, when Sarah insisted, he went and he, hag, he fathered a child with his, his maid Hagar. And then when Sarah reacted badly to Hagar's pride in her pregnancy, she allowed Sarah to, to drive Hagar out of the house. The Abram that we meet in the early episodes of this story, he, he's not a man of principle. He doesn't seem to have a proper sense of responsibility. This is the Abram that we met before he'd spent too much time in the classroom of life with the wisest and most loving teacher of all. The lesson Abram needed to learn more than any other was to learn to live before God. To see that all of life is lived under God. To understand that none of life makes reference, makes sense without reference to God. There's a lovely Latin phrase that captures a little of what I'm talking about at the moment. Coram Deo. It means to live in the presence of God or before the face of God. Through the rough and tumble of normal everyday life, God's teaching Abram to live Coram Deo. You might remember Abram's early struggles that God would provide for him. That's why he fled from Canaan when there was a famine. Or that God would protect him. That's why he told lies about Sarah when he was in Egypt. In his grace, God shows him that he'll be his provider and his protector. In fact, God goes to say just as much in the opening verses of chapter 15. He says, do not be afraid, Abram. I am your shield and your great reward. I'm the shield to protect you. I'm your reward to provide for you. God is inviting Abram to trust him. To live Coram Deo. In chapter 17, God makes this explicit in his invitation to him that he wants him to live this way. He says, walk before me. Live in my presence. Again and again, God confronted Abram with himself. He led him to the point where Abram could say with all of his heart what the psalmist would say centuries later. Whom have I in heaven but you? Earth has nothing I desire besides you. God is my strength of my heart and my portion forever. Abram's learning to live before God. And as the story proceeds, we see God and his grace transforming him the old weaknesses sometimes reappear, but alongside them there emerges a, a new nobility and, a, and an independence. Throughout the story, we've seen a new meekness. He, he declines to claim his rights. To remember in the land share with Lot, doesn't need to, to claim his own rights. He's a new courage. He sets off with a mere 300 men to rescue Lot from the combined forces of four kings. He's a new dignity. He refuses the booty 
from these battles, these victory in battle, in case anyone imagines that it was the king of Sodom who made him wealthy rather than the Lord Most High who provided for him. We see a new patience as he waits month after month after month for a quarter of a century from the age of 75 to 100 for the birth of the son promised to him. We see him becoming a man of prayer. Do you remember how he pleaded with God for Sodom? He pleads for people who, whose morality was, was much less than him, but also he pleads for Abimelech in a moment when Abimelech's morality exceeds his. And we see him in the end so utterly devoted to the will of God, so confident in God's will and in what God's doing, that he's willing, because God asked him to, to kill his own son, the heir for whose birth he'd waited so long. It's a deep, deep transformation. It's the outworking of Abram's developed habit of walking with the Lord, of resting in God's will. But it's all a work of God's grace in his life. Abram's been in the classroom of life and his heavenly father has been his teacher and guide. How well Abram's learned his lessons. Isn't that so exciting? Are you excited? I hope you are. I hope you're encouraged to see the, the change that God has effected in Abram's life. But this story isn't in Scripture simply to, to inspire us, to leave us where we are. Abram's story is recorded in God's Word for our benefit. The same gracious, wise God who's been turning this man's heart, who's been transforming him so deeply, wants to do the same in you and in me. We shouldn't be surprised then if God allows us to face trials or if he actively puts us to the test in the way that he did with Abram. You see, God is at work in us, in the real circumstances of our lives. He wants to make something of us. What's he up to in these hard times that we're going through? Well, that depends on who we are and on what we need. Maybe he wants to strengthen us in patience and good humor, in compassion and humility by giving us extra practice in these virtues in some especially difficult situations. Maybe he's waiting to teach us self-denial. Maybe he wants us to be less sure of ourselves. Maybe he's working in us to shake us out of our complacency or some unreality that we've wound up living in. Maybe he's at work to rid us of some undetected pride or conceit. Maybe he's bringing us through hard times simply to draw us closer to him. Isn't it often the case that we're more open to God 
whenever we're experiencing trials than when life is too easy. Friends, it's not always clear to me what God's purposes is in the trials in my life or, or in yours. But one thing's clear. God's trials are always for our good. J.R. Packer in Knowing God says of our difficulties, particularly the ones that we can't understand in the moment, they will have been sent to make us and to keep us humble and to give us a new opportunity of showing forth the power of Christ in our mortal lives. And do we ever need to know more about them than that? Our struggles give us a chance to show forth Christ. What could be better than that? We're thinking just now of how Abram's story is a story of God's grace. The truth is that God has drawn Abram into his gospel purposes. In a rather intriguing turn of phrase in Galatians 3, Paul says that God announced the gospel in advance to Abram. What? What could this ancient sheep herder, this first father of the people of Israel who lived 2,000 years before Jesus ever came, what could he possibly know of the gospel? Well, from our vantage point, we can look back and see how Abram stood at the head of a, of a long history of redemption that finds its climax in Jesus. His story lays the groundwork for the, our understanding of who God is, what a human being is, and how the two can become faithful friends. Think about it for a moment. Abram's story begins when God takes the initiative. It begins with God's invitation to respond in faith. And it's the same for us in the life of faith. God calls us, we respond in faith. God established a relationship with Abram that survived human failings. None of us can have a relationship without God other than it survives our failings. God's work with Abram witnesses an expansiveness in the gracious and universal intent of God to bring a blessing to all the peoples of the earth. God calls us now to share the gospel with the whole world so that all nations will be blessed through him. Abram's story sees God turn ill-conceived human initiatives into opportunities for restoration and even blessing. Ultimately, we've seen in Abram's story that our God is so committed to his people in unconditional love We've seen God's desire to enter into a relationship with us is so strong that he's willing to sacrifice his own son to make that relationship work. Friends, from call to covenant to correction to culmination, Abram's story is a remarkable story. A story that goes right to the heart 
of what it means to be a human being and a faithful follower of Jesus Christ. This story is and presents to us the gospel. We need to bring this sermon and series to a close. Our two questions. Where am I going and what am I building? Rather than me put those questions to you, why don't we do something different? Why don't we ask an older Abram to look back over his life and tell us how he would answer those questions? Where am I going? I, I don't know entirely. Haven't known for years. Ever since that day in Haran when I said yes to the living God, I've been on an adventure. He told me to leave home, but he didn't tell me where we'd be going. So quite honestly, I've never known where I've been going, but I've known far, far better. I've known who has traveled with me. I lived my life traveling with the living God. What have I been building? Well, my family started off in a city renowned for its impressive buildings, Ur of the Chaldean sister city of Babel. Our, our city was well known for its new technology. We were well known for building our towers to the heavens, for making a name for ourselves. Now that I've left Ur and Haran, I've become a stranger in a foreign country, if I ever have a name, it'll be whatever name the living God gives me. And I live in a tent. But I'm not worried about not leaving my children a mansion, a big city to be living in, a building as a monument to me. You see, I'm looking forward to a much greater city, greater than Ur, greater than any of the cities of this earth. I'm looking forward to a city with unshakable foundations, a city whose builder and architect is God. Brothers and sisters, where are you going? Abram believes that God will take him to a far better place than he'd ever go to himself. What are you building? Abram believes that God will build him a far better life than he could ever create for himself. Abram's living by faith. Are you? And I want to close this series not just with a, a personal challenge, but a corporate challenge for us all to hear together. I want to ask us as a church family, are we together living by faith? I've been challenged recently by what I read in a book by Jack Miller, a little book called Outgrowing the Ingrown Church. For Miller, the first sign of what he calls an ingrown church is a church with, with tunnel vision. It's a church, he says, that limits the potential ministries of the church to those that can be accomplished by the visible human resources at hand. Think about it. If we limit 
what God can do here among us in this church to what can only be accomplished with the visible human resources at hand, we are still living in Ur of the Chaldeans. We're living in Babel. We're just doing the stuff that human beings left to their own devices always do. Let's get out of Ur and out of Babel. Let's get on the road to goodness knows where, knowing that only the goodness of God goes before us. Let's throw ourselves on him and trust him by his Holy Spirit. Let's learn to live by faith. And let's live in tents so that we can find our place in a greater city whose architect and builder is God. Let us pray. It has been by grace that you've been saved through faith. Lord, when Paul told that to the, the Christians in Ephesus, we hear it for us today. Lord, we've been saved by grace through faith. We thank you for the grace that saved us. We thank you for the faith you've given us, the little faith that we've had that's allowed us to respond to Jesus. But Lord, we pray that you would grow our faith. We pray that you would help us to live before you every moment of every day, to grow to trust you in ever-increasing measure so that you can use us ever more for your glory. Amen.